Scubups has the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 311 is recorded live December 15, 2016. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where we're recommending that you jump in the water to get warm. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well. I am thawing out. And how are you yourself? Uh, I'm kind of the same way. It was a little, little chilly out there. That, I, the wind chill factor is what, what kills you. Well, that was bad, but uh, my thermostat in the car was saying 8 degrees. That's 8 degrees Fahrenheit. And uh, that was that was a little chilly. And then you're right with the wind. I mean, the wind was pretty gusty. I'm, I'm not sure what it had been 40 to 60, at least, miles per hour. I hate I hate those advertisements. Did you no, hear it? No, I did, it didn't come across on our side. Yeah, it's, uh, I'll see if it stays off. <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about, those. Uh, you, you get to where you can't visit a website. I, I need to make a plug-in I can install, and I, like my own personal blacklist. I don't care what other people blacklist. I just have decided if you're going to go and do that to me, I don't want to go and visit it. So I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Eric joining us this week, so thank you very much. Also like to thank our supporters through Patreon. Picked up a couple more supporters in the last week. So if you think this show is at least worth a dollar, head on over to our our uh, website, follow the links to Patreon and give us a donation, $1, $3, whatever amount would sure help. $3 gets you access to the show notes uh before the episode gets showed. And uh today we put to use some of those donations uh by upgrading our web hosting. So hopefully in the next week or so, you'll see that upgrade. It uh, probably quadrupled our costs moving to a new host, but I think it's going to be worth it uh, quite a bit faster. And I say quadrupled that just for the web hosting. We also are going to be, once the web hosting migration is completed, we'll be migrating to a, another host for just the audio and video files. So that's happening over here. Hopefully by the first of the year, we'll have that all completed. Well, I need to say a thank you to the anonymous donor out there who contributed towards the fund to uh, get me a headset and help the uh, help us be able to do our broadcast a lot better. Yeah, certainly, we we certainly appreciate that. And next episode, we should be hearing the benefits of that donation. All the gears in uh, configured, we just need to get it put onto your system, and we'll be all set to go. Excellent. I'm really curious to see how that works. Yeah, it's a uh, it's. I'm, I'm, what, what amazed me, and I, maybe we'll do a write-up on it or a, on the post, uh, is just how heavy duty a lot of this gear is. You know, a lot of times, especially when we work with technology, uh, you get the little plastic case and, you know, you, you spend a, quite a bit of money and the weighs just a few ounces and this is beefy. And I think the reasoning is it's aimed at musicians. And uh, I'm not saying that musicians can be hard on stuff, but, you know, when you, break guitars on stage i think that they want your amplifier and mix equipment to be pretty heavy duty so that's one thing that i was struck by picking it up uh, 
I also realize that uh, being in the digital world and then working with some more traditional equipment, I'm really a novice when it comes to this gear. Uh, now that I got it figured out, it's like, well, that's easy. But it had probably been uh, – I used to use professional uh, sound equipment other than for the podcast in the theater. But it has been almost 30 years since I've done that. So, so let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. First article up is a treasure hunter who found gold is sitting in jail. So it seems like they're, uh, in, in, until they get their way, they're not going to let him out. Tom, I'll add, but is that the same place where you ran into it? Or it started talking at me. <laughs> I, I, it was it was bugging at me too. Uh, yeah. Tommy G. Thompson was one of the greatest treasure hunters of his time. Uh, hauled a trove of gold from the Atlantic Ocean in 1988, dubbed the richest find in U.S. history. Years later, accused of cheating his investors out of a fortune, led federal agents on a great manhunt, pursued from Florida mansion to a mid-rent hotel, booked under a fake name. Thompson's beard is great. He lives in an Ohio jail cell. Held there until he gives up the location of the gold. For nearly two years, despite threats and fines and the best, uh, what's, exhortations? Yeah, somebody broke, broke out a thesaurus, uh, of a federal judge known as Man Jamaica Thompson reveal what he did with the treasure. The wreck of the SS Central America waited 130 years for Thompson to come along. The steamer went down the hurricane in 1857, taking 425 souls and at least three tons of California gold to the seafloor off South Carolina. The, Many tried to find it, but no one succeeded until an engineer from Columbus, Ohio, built an underwater robot called Nemo to pinpoint the Central America, then dive 8,000 feet under the sea and surface with the loot. He spent years studying the ship's fateful voyage, developing technology to plunge deeper in the ocean than anyone had retrieved treasure before. And they talk about some of the items. Um, I, I love the part where they said, though, he pulled up rare 19th century coins, the ship's bell, and gold bars 15 times bigger than the largest California gold bar previously known to exist. That's freaking awesome. Yeah, two of the expedition's biggest investors took him to court in the 2000s, accusing him of selling nearly all the gold and keeping the profits to himself. When a federal judge ordered Thompson to appear in 2012, he didn't show. An arrest warrant was issued, but the man was found. Long lost shipwreck had disappeared. The following two-year manhunt for what top U.S. Marshal called perhaps one of the smartest fugitives the agency had ever chased. He had almost limitless resources, approximately a 10-year head start. Thompson and his girlfriend had been living for the year in a Florida mansion, paying rent with cash that was damp and moldy from the earth had been buried in. The couple fled by time authorities found the house. Government records detailed what they'd left behind. Disposable cell phones, money straps stamped $10,000 and a guide on evading law enforcement how to be invisible. Thompson was finally caught in January 2015 after agents tracked his girlfriend to a $200 a night hotel near West Palm Beach, the Post reported at the time. In a celebratory statement, Tobin said U.S. Marshals had used all the resources and ingenuity to find the treasure hunter, but they haven't found the treasure. Uh, Thompson's investors originally expected to make tens of millions of dollars from the venture, believe he had hundreds of gold coins secreted in a trust account for his children, at first, her search for the coins looked promising. Thompson had pled guilty to contempt of court in April 2015, according to Columbus Dispatch. He said the coins were in Belize and agreed to reveal their exact location, but that didn't happen. Thompson's attorney said last month the client couldn't remember who gave the gold to, even after pouring through thousands of pages of document related to treasure, according to Dispatch. A federal judge ruled that Thompson was faking memory problems, the newspaper reported, 
and has held him in Ohio jail for a year. Thompson could remain behind bars until he talks and is being fined $1,000 a day in the meantime. Who knows, he <laughs> might have ep- uh, an epiphany. U.S. Judge Aganon uh, Marbley remarked on Monday he ordered Thompson to answer questions about the gold's location, but so far the SS Central America's treasure remains missing for a second time in two centuries. If you look at the pictures, he has aged and not gracefully. Did you see the picture of him? Oh, yeah. Well, you got to figure he's... Go ahead. I was going to say, the part I really like, though, is you're talking about what he may have hidden, but what about the stuff that's still there? It said 95% of the wreck was still unexplored, potentially worth a minimum $400 million. Yeah, well, I believe that they, uh, part of this, this case is the judge granted the rights to the shipwreck to the uh, creditors, and then I can't remember if it was a judge or if it was the creditors that then hired uh, Odyssey to go and do a recovery. Uh, and I think there was a recovery, but it wasn't really made public as to how much was recovered. And that was... That would be an interesting item, wouldn't it, to know yeah. how much they get. Yeah, how, how much did they they get since that time. It also makes you wonder, though, if the people who didn't get their money from him, since that wreck is part of that money they should have got, uh-huh. did they get a portion of that also? No. I mean, and if the other group, Odyssey, went back and recovered some, uh-huh. are the other people entitled to a portion of that? I think they are. Yeah, I think that was part of the uh, the deal. But I think Odyssey had, and I, I think that's why, it, it, gosh, let me see. We, we can do a quick search here. We have the power of the Internet. Uh, SS Central America Odyssey Yeah, here's uh, give you the paste. Oh, goodness, look at that picture. I'm looking at the Odyssey Marine Exploration and this is uh, 2014, so that's got to be recent, relatively recent. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at the money laying on the freaking bottom and the silver and the gold coins. That's an old, oh, this is a, which side are you at? I'm at the Maritime Executive.com. Oh, no, I'm not at that one. Oh, man. I'm sending that to you. I'd like to, that looks quite interesting. The picture's awesome. Let's see, where'd that go? I heard it oh, beep at me. Oh, there it is. Oh. Gold coins, twenty dollar double eagles, five down through five, ten, fifty, five, ten, five, two fifty dollar coins, fractional gold territorials, a wide variety of foreign gold. Looking at this, it's like the stuff is right there in the mud. Gold wow. ingots. It's like darn. Wow. Yeah, that this is nice. Nice one. I wonder what that does to the numistic value coins. That used to be worth so much because there wasn't hardly any, and now you've got hundreds, possibly. It, it does affect them greatly. In fact, you see a lot of it. Uh, some of our customers are magazines that publish information on it, and they even go to talk about that when they talk about a coin, whether it was a shipwreck coin or not, because the shipwreck coins are so plentiful and they're in such great condition yeah. uh, that you know, it, they, they kind of try and differentiate between them. And it does, it has affected it. But oh, the nice thing about awesome. gold is that gold has a value even if you just melt it down. Yeah, um, bullion value versus, uh, numistic. It says Odyssey receives 80% of recovered proceeds 
until a fixed fee and negotiated day rate are paid, and then they receive 45% of recover process. It says the inventories detail the items recovered to date, which include gold ingots, nuggets, dust, and a wide variety of gold coins from a $20 double eagles down to $10, 5 $250, and $1 gold coins, as well as California fractional gold, territorials, and wide variety of foreign gold. Additional significant cultural heritage artifacts have been identified and will be recovered. Evans has been aboard the Odyssey Explorer since operation began April 2014, cattle and the gold as it's recovered. So it's been going on. Now, as a stockholder in Odyssey, I have not seen any of this gold. Uh, so a lot of it must be going into expenses. And, in fact, I know that last year they've done quite a bit of divesting of uh, some of their, their vessels and resources. Interesting. Still pretty cool. How about that, that ship's wheel, uh, the the side wheeler there. You can keep the wheel. I'll take the gold. Thank you. Let's see. That's going to be a little hard to dive on, though. 7,200 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting article. And I just wonder, does he really have it? Did he really, does he really not remember? And is anybody making a profit other than the recovery crew? Well. Because it's got to be expensive. Yeah. Well, I think that's, yeah. It's, that's cool. Yeah. And unless you can go and. Get it pretty quickly. You can burn through quite a bit. Oh, yeah. I just wonder how long they can realistically keep him in there for that cause. I mean, you know what I'm saying? You murder somebody and you get out in 10, 15 years. Yeah, I don't know at what point. I. The one thing is, you know, contempt of court, which is just short for saying you piss the judge off. Uh I mean, there's a lot of discretion and latitude that these judges have. So unless another judge or a superior court above him uh, decides they want to get involved in that, he can pretty much keep them there indefinitely. I find that hard to believe. That just does not seem right, does it? You know, it doesn't. Let me see. Let's let's, uh, try the Internet again. What is the longest someone has been incarcerated or contempt of court. Contempt of court. I mean, I've seen people lie and be contempt of Congress, and they're not even in freaking jail. Okay, so let's see. Oh, wow. A 73-year-old Philadelphia lawyer walked out of prison July 10th after serving 14 years for contempt of court, the longest term ever served for contempt. In a divorce so, proceeding in 1995, H. Betty Chadwick, said he had lost his fortune about $2.75 million, so he could not make a significant financial settlement with soon-to-be ex-wife Bobby. At the time, the court professed its skepticism at his claim of uh, pauperage and ordered him to produce his money. He claimed the money had been lost, and he was sent to jail. If I had been convicted of murder in the third degree in Philadelphia, I would have spent half that time in jail, Chadwick said in a telephone interview with Associated Press after his release. I have... Spent a little time thinking about it and see how I could best use my skills and talent. In 2005, uh, Bobby Chadwick said he had no reason to see her ex-husband remain in jail. She said she wished he would come to his senses and realize, okay, life is short. This is crazy. Uh, but Betty Chadwick, who worked for a top lawyer for an international corporation in Philadelphia, told primetime live correspondent Jim Alvia in 2005 that he's not keeping anything from his wife. I didn't control the cash. They haven't been able to establish that despite the fact they have run up a large bill in the process. And so the theme seems to be is it's if they think you've got money is what it comes down to. 
Yeah. And so, can they have a piece of the pie? Yeah. Well, you know, they they didn't say in this article, but you know, if they're like the other one, they're charging a thousand dollars a day. You know, how how many inmates is he funding, or do they think he can fund? How much are they charging him a day? A thousand dollars a day. Oh, you're talking about yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah, but if you got no money, you're not going to pay it. So, you know, three hundred sixty-five thousand a year. Yeah. If you never come forth through the money, they didn't get anything. Now, something also that'd be interesting is does do time served for contempt of court go against any criminal sentence that you have? Wouldn't you think you'd have a criminal sentence first? Well, it does, but maybe that's maybe if you know you're going to be charged with something and you're going to serve 20 years, well, just start serving the 20 years. Why give him the money? I mean, he's in jail for contempt, but if he's going to go to jail for that same amount of time for fraud, you know, what are you out? You know, at least you got something to look forward to or somebody's already gone off with it. I mean, he's he's in jail, but he was living with his girlfriend. Wouldn't you think that she would know where that is? Uh, I don't think I'd tell my girlfriend because <laughs> she's not in jail. <laughs> and besides, I don't know how a judge himself can say he doesn't believe him, that he doesn't have the memory of that. Mm-hmm. It seems like that it would have to be a medical opinion, not a judge's opinion. Yeah, I, I would think so, but that's the one thing that I've I've always thought is, you know, you know if you're if you're pulled over at the night, it's usually a good idea not to get fighting a cop. But even more than that is don't get in fight with a judge. <laughs> Doesn't make it right. No, there's all we hear those stories, and uh, science tends not to want to believe eyewitnesses. But here is a uh, documentation. Uh, Six-story high wave sets a record. This is according to a U.N. agency. The U.N. Weather Agency on Tuesday announced the highest wave on record, measuring 19 meters or 62 feet above the North Atlantic. Scrutiny of data sent back from the automated buoy showed a monster wave rose at 6 GMT on February 4, 2013, at a remote spot between Britain and Iceland, the World Meteorological Association said. This is the first time we've measured a wave of 19 meters. It is a remarkable record. Taller than a six-story building, the mighty wave occurred in a very strong cold front that barreled through sea, producing winds of 43.8 knots, 81 kilometers, and 50.4 miles per hour. The previous record height was 18.3 meters in December 2007 in the North Atlantic. I, I hear those, but I have issues with them. For example... The biggest wave surfed is over 100 feet tall. So wouldn't that be the highest wave compared to this one? Yeah, I'd say so. So when you say surfed, so somebody found was surfing and there's a 100-foot wave? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. The second part was the world's biggest tsunami was 1,720 feet. So there Tallest must... wave ever recorded was a local tsunami in the Bay of Alaska, 1958, and I remember... The verbiage and the pictures of that, that up on the top of a freaking mountain is where the wave hit and wiped out this forest. So it's like, well, it's the way they're defining that as the largest because on Lake Michigan, we've had measured over 50-foot waves. Right. And that's just Lake Michigan. So I'm curious about that. Well, yeah, I I think that must be they're not saying they're going to – this is a type of wave. Yeah. So for whatever type of wave this was, it set a record. But this can't be. 
They said they announced the highest wave on record. So maybe it's the highest wave on their record. Yeah, because I'm reading here. This is from the Smithsonian.com. One of the biggest waves in recorded history. And it says, uh, a 25-foot, this was, uh, I can't pronounce it, but it's in Tahiti. Waves are modest in height. Surfers call them thick lips, the world's heaviest, 25 feet. Uh, as a tide comes up in this part of China, a wave called the Silver Dragon travels up the river, opposite direction of the flow. It was 29 feet. In Hawaii, the Banzai Pipeline, 30 feet. Indian Ocean tsunami 10 years ago traveled at speeds of 500 miles an hour, barged up to a mile inland, killed 200,000 people, 50 foot. The Garrett McNamara holds the record for the largest wave ever surfed at 78 feet in Portugal. 1995, most scientists dismissed sudden unexpected swells known as rogue waves, which obviously now they realize, whoops, we were wrong. Yeah. Uh, on a New Year's Day of that year, a monitoring platform off of Norway recorded a single 84-foot wave surrounded by 20-footers and 100-foot, an earthquake followed by a landslide in 1958 at a minimum at the Alaska's Latui Bay, generated a wave over 100-foot tall, the largest tsunami ever documented. When it ran ashore, it snapped trees 1,700 feet upslope and so... That doesn't, you know, I'm not too much impressed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting, you know, the perspectives. Yeah. Well, it's just that, that what really always reminded me is you'd hear sailors say the stories about the waves, how big they were, and they, they almost got sunk, and everybody like, well, you know, people, humans can't estimate height, and that's exaggeration. And then, you know, they you're, we're eventually seeing that some of these stories were true. Uh, my dad was talking about... Uh, when I posted this on Facebook, he said that he was in a storm on Cape Hatteras on a destroyer, and he said that they were having uh, 35 to 40 foot f uh, waves, and the destroyer was uh, doing 47 degree rolls. Yeah, well, you figure the Sea of Japan has some tremendous, tremendous wave action. Uh, the Cape of Good Horn, another one that has tremendous seas. Uh, I don't want to be in any of them, and I no. certainly don't want to be on a, a destroyer. <laughs> uh, you've seen the pictures the last couple of weeks we've seen on the of an aircraft carrier. Now, if you go between the swell where it goes down and then comes back up, that's a heck of a lot of, you know, that's a large amount of footage there. I don't know exactly the distance, but you can hurt yourself just come, jumping off the flight deck in a clear day. <laughs> you know, some of these are huge waves, huge troughs, and I don't want to be out there. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm, uh, you know, when, when we get the, when we got five to six feet in its building, that's usually when I say let's it's it's time to not be on the water. I mean, I'm going to I'm going to be doing drumming through my veins, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't normally get that seasick, but I I think I would get sick for other reasons. Yeah. So they're big ones out there. Oh man. And then we have this talking about going out, probably when you shouldn't. The NTSB releases transcript from the shipwreck of the doomed El Faro. It was one of the deadliest U.S. shipwrecks in decades. 33 crew members from the El Faro were killed uh, last October when the boat sailed into Category 3 Hurricane Joaquin. Uh, the last hours and minutes of the 790-foot freighter's ship sinking were revealed at the National Transportation Safety Board. The boat's final resting place was 15,000 feet below the Caribbean east of Bahamas. 
Search crews have hauled up the recorder last summer. Raquel Ham's husband, Frank, who grew up in Baltimore, was among those who killed. We've got five kids, three gang kids. It's been very difficult. My whole household has changed. My whole life has changed. Ham attended the briefing by the NTSB on the disaster Tuesday morning. It centered around 10 hours of transcript audio from the doomed freighter ship Voyage Data Recorder. The transcript, which was more than 500 pages long, is the longest ever produced by the NTSB. It revealed some of the weather data was six hours old when it reached the ship, which lost propulsion and steering as the hurricane bared down. The El Faro Bridge audio recorder began at 5.37 a.m. September 30, 2015, roughly eight hours after the ship left Jacksonville, Florida. It ended 7.40 a.m. at October 1st. Loud crashes and banging were picked up by mics in the boat's bridge deck near the end of the recording, as well chilling exchanges between the captain and crew. The transcript shows the captain ordering people to get in the rafts. Later shows the captain telling someone, you got to get up, you got to snap out of it, we've got to get out. It shows a helmsman saying, I'm a goner, another helmsman asking the captain, you're going to leave me? Earlier in the transcript, the, the captain is shown as saying, we'll be about 60 miles south of the eye, we should be fine, we're going to be fine, not should be, we are going to be fine. Despite the release of so much data, exact cause of sinking is still to be determined by the NTSB. It was very difficult, but God held us up and held us together, Ham said. The NTSB may not have made a determination yet, but Ham said she blames the tragedy on the captain for waiting too long to change course. Now, do you think that they're going to blame the captain, or are they going to say that it was a case of not having accurate weather information soon enough? He had the information before he left. But if the main propulsion failed, you know, you had great aim. If the, if the engines or propulsion had not failed, it would not have happened. So what do you say? If you go out, you assume your ship is going to be good. It's going to work. You're going to go out, make a big turn, miss everything, but your engines quit. Yeah. And if you got propulsion, you can't keep steerage. You're not going to do well in a, in a hurricane like that. No, you, you can't, you can't take some of those hits from the side or from the back. If you're not under power. Yeah, I'm looking at an item here. The captain's plan was to avoid the storm. Given the weather system, the captain's plan was a sound plan that would enable him to clearly pass around the storm with a margin of comfort that was adequate in his professional opinion. Yeah, another article I read, uh, somebody, I can't remember if it was the Coast Guard or somebody else, had asked another vessel to go and, and aid him, and they said, no way, we you know, we think we're going to cause more damage and risk to ourselves than we'd be, uh, than help we'd be able to offer. No win situation. And after the fact, it's always easy to say what you should have done, could have done, or might have done. Yeah. And that's like yourself. If you have a problem and then down the road you keep saying, well, well I could have done, should have done, you're going to go nuts. You yeah. did the best you had with the information you had. Yep. Yeah. The question would be is why did the equipment fail? You know, why they that lose power. Was, yeah, what happened to the propulsion? Next one, and, and maybe we'll cover this one after your safety story, or maybe part of it. Scuba diving safety begins above the water. This is an article from the Sun Sentinel. Uh, I think it's important to have that discussion. You have to have that discussion above the water, because once you get in the water, it's hard to communicate. <coughs> we usually have a plan as to what we're attempting to do. So this is uh, a, a retired Deerfield Beach fire chief, Jim Matthew, and the crew of his boat. The chief, he figured out what they want to do on a dive before they ever get into the water. Not only makes diving safer, safer, it also makes it more enjoyable. 
To me, the reason why I dive is to be stress-free. So the more that we can relax and take it easier, the better your dive is going to be. Planning has made a difference on a recent lobstering and spearfishing trip out of Hillsborough Inlet with Matthew, Ken Oodle, John Struck, and Andy Rubin. At each spot, Matthew's divers talked about what the reef looked like, what part they should swim along, what they might see, and what to do if conditions were not what they were expecting. Before one dive, Matthew talked about how the current should be running south, which would allow us to swim with it for the length of a particular reef, but he said that the current was running to the north. We should immediately surface because it would be too hard to fight the current, and there's nothing worth investigating to the north. So after reaching the bottom, there was a north current. Matthew gave us the thumbs up signs we knew to head back to the boat. It's knowing the reef and knowing the spots and knowing what you're doing. And then he goes on and he says, it's important because we just don't want to just surface way far away from the flag and the boat doesn't know where you are. Uh, it's important that you're side by side as opposed to follow the leader. He said a lot of folks, when they're not hunting, they'll actually go follow the leader because it's kind of the way they were taught. They have a dive master or dive instructor and they're showing you different things in the reef. With hunting, I don't want you behind me. I want I don't want you in front of me. I want you side of me. That way, when Ken stopped for lobster and he squawked a little bit, I said, okay, okay, I'll go over and check out and see if he needs some help. It's part of the safety plan. Honk and stop. This is the way we're not going to get separated. I'm not spending half my dive trying to find you as opposed to hunting and trying to find a lobster. Right. That is part of that situational awareness we've been talking about. Yeah. Now, what, what's, it, what's, what's the signaling that they're using? So the well, you, you can arrange whatever signaling you want for a particular job. Mm -hmm. The key item is make sure everybody knows what hand signals they're going to use and what they, they expect to use. Stop for lobster and he, he squawked a little bit. I wonder how they would do the squawk. I mean, because I'm always looking for ways to audibly communicate. Well, there's a lot of different ways. You ever use the glove method? I haven't, but we've talked about that before on the show. It works. That's what's really crazy. I mean, obviously, if it's a freezing day, I'm not going to take my glove off. <laughs> if you've not done that or in a swimming pool, take a regular glove that you're going to be wearing, put it over your mouth, get some air into it, and talk, and you can hear what you're saying. Hmm. Sounds interesting. You have a good chamber. Yes. Try the glove method. We'll have to do that. It's hey. cheap. Take an extra glove with you. There you go. I've, I've got extras. I've got some that uh, have succumbed to zebra mussels, so they no yeah. longer are the as water resistant as you would like. You know what? Well, you want the water resistant because you don't want the air coming out when you're breathing into it to make a chamber. Yeah, you, yeah. You could always go uh, dope it up a little bit, but yeah, they're usually the the seams is is where they start to give out on the they start to to fray a little bit. We have a shipwreck discovered off the Cornish coast of Podark fame. 17th century shipwreck has been rediscovered by divers in a Cornish bay where the TV series Poldark filmed in dramatic wreck scene. Protected wreck is a site of the Shy Dam, which was first spotted in 1971 and has been buried under shifting sands of the water off Gunwall Church Cove on Cornwall's south coast, where it's stranded during a gale in 1684. Divers have found the wreck again after a storm, providing a rare opportunity to monitor historic site viewing and recording cannons, but musket barrels and iron hand grenades, which were part of the ship's cargo. The Shidam was originally a cargo vessel Dutch East India Company fleet, but was captured by Barbary pirates off the Spanish coast and its crew enslaved. It was soon captured again by the Royal Navy ship and taken to Cadiz, where the cargo was sold. 
vessel served in the English fleet and sank while carrying a company of arms miners and horses, stories, machinery, and captured guns back from Tangier. The wreck is close to shore and around three to four meters of water at low tide, but its protected wreck site can only be visited by a license issued by Historic England. It lies in a spot where major shipwreck scene was filmed in a 2014 for the TV series. Now, did they forget where it was, or they're just saying that now you can see it? I don't know. Sounds like the sand shifts over quite a bit. Because they were talking about now they have been able to pinpoint GPS fixes, so that should take care of it. If they didn't do GPS before, I can understand, yeah. you know, X on the water. Yeah, and if you, if you're if the water's clear enough for you just look down and you can see it, and then someday you can't. Uh, well, it's like those cannon. You see the first picture. I'm surprised you don't take some kind of uh, protection line around it and put a buoy on it, you know, like a four-foot one, so you can spot it. So if the sand does shift, you've got a visual location. How about, you know, those, how about those musket barrels? Yeah. Those are pretty And it cool. looks like he's got a reel in his hand going down, so I wonder if that's a, you know, a location device for himself or a tether to a GPS. You know, a line. Mm -hmm. The grenade is quite interesting, especially having the plug still in it. Yeah. The wooden plug. That is. It's an interesting size, too, because he's, he's takes a photo of it next to his dive knife. Well, you usually have it as big as you can grab comfortably in your hand. You're not going to take a cannonball because it's too freaking heavy. And you can't toss it very far. It's yeah, like a shot putter. Yeah. Don't you like yeah. that fuse? I don't think you want to be going in a circle like a shot putter. And yeah, you don't want to spin three stand. times and kaboom. Yeah, or you, you do that and you slip, and it rolls down between the ship gunnels or yeah, something. Which way are you aiming when you release? <laughs> that, 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 would, that would be a bad version of friendly fire. Yeah, that's it's interesting. Did you miss one, by the way, the elk's horn? Oh, I did, yeah. Let's go back and jump and get the elk's horn. I thought that was a... Because I'm curious how we knew what it was, because we find bones all the time. Now, this one is a Minnesota man finds an elk antler during a scuba dive. Let's see if I can get this. Oh, evil, evil. Uh, a piece of lance pass pulled from the treasure-filled waters of Becker County. A local scuba diver wants to know how old his find is. Gary Thompson has been pulling history out of the water for half a century. He has thousands of dives under his belt, but this August may be his oldest yet. He found a giant antler in nearby Buffalo Lake while scuba diving. It came across and it looked like a big root to start with. But once he pulled it out of the water, got it up in the boat, and was awestruck by the size of it. The antler is massive, about five feet long, weighs about 30 pounds. It's just not big. It's ancient. The last time elk were reported in this area was 1850, said Thompson. But Thompson believed it could be much, much older, possibly from extinct species. Could be, from what I've been told, up to 13,000 years. He did some research, asked a few experts, but no definite, definitive age. Once we find something in the water, we have to know more about it which is why Thompson's plans on having a laboratory determine how old it is. It costs so much to get it carbon dated. Wants a little help, so he set up a GoFundMe account. So far, he's got $260 from curious donors. The antlers have been in the lake for a long time before Thompson found it. He's hopeful he won't have to do too much waiting to find out how long. He believes it could be answered as soon as January. He plans on preserving the antler and donating it to a museum eventually. So his GoFundMe is, is, is a... Total goal is seven hundred forty dollars, and he's currently sitting at six hundred. I just sent you a picture of the antler. Huge, awesome! Did you get the picture? Uh, I know you sent it. 
uh, here we go. Yeah, I mean, if you find this, you know you found something. So this is the, the saltydogs.com? Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. Come on. Very, up. very big. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, five foot long, weighs 30 pounds. It, it looks just like that. I mean, it. So that's the one that she's standing next to? Yes. Yes. Isn't that awesome? It is. Now I'm just wondering, did he find it together? Is there a skull missing or something that was in the middle? Cause remember we found, say I found that one with the horns on it and then, uh, Skyler found one during the ecology dive with horns. Yeah. Th- this with the skull. Not like this. Yeah. Well, th- there's a picture of him in the GoFundMe. And it doesn't look like there's a uh, a skull attached at that point. So I'm guessing that was about the time he found it. All right, so that's got to be cleaned up, the one that she's showing. But, yeah. yeah, that's huge. But, yeah, like you said, carbon dating, it's like, why guess? Do it that way. I can't believe, though, that one of the local colleges or, un- excuse me, or universities well, seem like they have a, an, a vested interest in doing that. I think so, but I have an idea there may be a little bit of uh, – you know, if you donated it to them, then they may take it on and do that. But if you're going to retain title, you know, here, pony up. I donate. Just put my name on it. Let them take care of it. Put yeah. it out for display. Because you can't do much with it. No. No. Yeah. That's he, awesome. That's huge. Yeah. The cost is $740 to have it carbon, date, carbon dated. Detroit Lake, Minnesota. Cool. I love your next one, though. James Matthew Shipwreck off the Perth coast. That's your next one, correct? Yep, that's the next one. I sure would like to dive that wreck. The James Matthew is being photographed to create a detailed three-dimensional model of the shipwreck. It is hoped the work will eventually help determine new ways of protecting it and other shipwrecks, as well as the ways to test new techniques and methods. The colors and details are really accurate. The WA Wartime or Maritime Museum's Madeline McAllister said, whereas in the past we could have taken some photos, created a 2D site map, and then done the measurements ourselves with tape, so it's not quite as accurate as what we're getting with these 3D models. Wow, look at that. Uh-huh. Boy, now it looks like those are ballast stones in yes. one aspect, but I'm looking at something to the top left of the picture. Uh-huh. That looks like a broken something with sand or something in it. I was thinking it was ballast stones first, but it doesn't appear to be. I mean, that's my that would be my feeling if it's ballast stones. Did it maybe roll and then sink? You know, so are we seeing it upside down? I don't know. I'm just trying to get perspective from it. Yeah, James. They've Matthew, got it laid out, so it's still hard to tell that. Yeah. Well, that one, I like. I, I see the one you're talking about. I can't tell if that's sand or is that just a like a a, a sheet of slate? Yeah, you know, that's stripped there. Yeah, I, I don't know, but I'm looking at the one under it, and they must have done a lot of excavating with that lift. Yeah. That's what we need to be able to do to ours. Yeah, they, they said archaeologists in the 70s sucked out much of the sand covering the James Matthew and their excavation. And I don't have a feeling that this is all that deep. No, I'm looking at the shadow up above it. Uh-huh. Visibility looks pretty good, too, darn it. Yeah, see, you see that one below? See where they're like... uh is that like slate pieces? I think that's what you're seeing up above. Uh, but it does, it did feel like ballast stone to me. Yeah. Um, it had previously been called the Don Francisco and was owned by a notorious and powerful Brazilian Boer slave trader called the Francisco Felix de Souza. Was operated out of West Africa and involved in 
power plays with leaders of the kingdom of uh, Dahomey in present-day Benin. Uh, it was seized in 1837 off the island of Dominica as it was headed towards Cuba by the British who had passed an act abolishing the slave trade de- three decades earlier. The British sailor found 433 slaves crammed inside the 24.5-meter hull. The ship should have been destroyed under the law at the time, but was instead repaired and renamed the James Matthew and Lennon registered merchant vessel, paving the way for its eventual demise. When the wreck was when it was wrecked off Woodman Point, the ship fell on its side, buried much of its cargo and rigging in the sand. That helped preserve the artifacts. In the case of James Matthew, it went into the sand, and the sand buried it with shifting currents and so forth. So basically, most of the ship was still there. Wonderful, Dr. Henderson said. The sand gives them an anaerobic environment, which means no oxygen, which means not much in the way t- deterioration has taken place. Now, if you go all the way around, you've got a picture of her doing a, a leap off. Giant stride. Yep. You see that? Okay, go down to the bottom left and then look at the third picture in, clip on that, and the fourth and the fifth. Those gives you an idea of the layout that we don't see otherwise. And that tells us that ship is on its side. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And then I go to the, the middle picture and there's nothing on that table I haven't seen in junk wrecks in the shallows around here. Other maybe I haven't found a pewter plate like that though. <laughs> but yeah, we've we've seen the shoes, the sand, the hinges, and the broken glass to the top left, broken uh, ceramics, and up uh, uh, off to the top right, mm-hmm. the porcelain looks like porcelain there. Mm-hmm. So what have I not seen? I've seen all of that except that plate if it's pewter, and that's just junk. That dead eye is quite interesting too. If you go to the next shot, yeah, I'm looking at it. Still has the material around it, the the rope. Beautiful. Yes. Nice article. I like, and like you said, it looks shallow. Be quite interesting to, to uh, dive in and take some pictures. Hmm. It looks like fun. Yes. And then, what can you find out from a toenail? Well, probably did they have lead poisoning from eating something that was stored in a lead can or? A, a tin can that was sealed by lead, like they did up in Alaska and places like that. Yep, that's what they're hoping to find or find out. Uh, a few details have emerged of the doomed voyage of the Royal Navy officer Sir John Franklin in 1845. Sir Franklin oh. led two British ships, the HMS Terror and the HMS Erebus, in search of the last section of Northwest Passage. When both ships became stuck in the ice, Sir Franklin and all 128 crew members tragically died, but exactly how they met their end has long been a mystery. Now researchers have mapped the fingernail of one of the dead men and found evidence that may have resorted to cannibalism. The nail reveals a severe zinc deficiency, suggesting that malnutrition was the more likely culprit in their death. This backs up a long-held theory that the doomed crew members resorted to eating their own to survive. Researchers at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada examined nail tissue of the HMS Terror crew member John Hartnell. Hartnell died in 1846 at the age of 25 and was one of three crew members to be buried in a remote spot on Beachy Island, Canada, the spot chosen by Franklin for encampment. His incredibly well-preserved mummified body was discovered and exhumed in 1984. Nails provide a record of the metals in the body over time, enabling the team to examine metal exposure and diet throughout the Franklin expedition. Researchers used laser 
ablation is a process involving laser beam stripping away material from the surface. A high-resolution X-ray to examine the nail samples. Our data enabled us to determine whether the metals of the thumbnail were from Hartnell's diet or from contamination of nail tissue from environmental sources such as coal dust in a ship. Research concluded the significant exposure did not occur during the fabled expedition. The results suggest that until his last few weeks of life, Hartnell's lead levels were within a healthy range. However, the results also showed he was severely zinc deficient, which may have resulted in tuberculosis and death. This is because zinc plays an important role in vitamin A production. Deficiencies in zinc and vitamin A lead to lower immune response, which means that the body finds it harder to fight off infections like tuberculosis. Malnourishment and zinc deficiency can both cause erratic behavior similar to that experiment experienced during lead poisoning. This may account for the strange behavior the crew members observed by Intuit people after the expedition ran into trouble. The process of starvation from tuberculosis resulted in exponential release of previously stored lead in the Hartnell's blood, says Jeannie Christen, CEO and founder of Trick Analytics, which led the study. Lead concentrations were only high and increasing at the end of his life when he was already likely near death. This explains why previous researchers discovered high lead concentrations in soft tissue, but they erroneously concluded it was due to recent exposure. In September, it's confirmed that the explorers in Canada found the wreck of the HMS Terror. What incentive could you possibly give a common sailor to put him on a boat with seven years of food supplied and says, go forth, young man, and die? I mean, well, he didn't say that, but of course, that's what's going to happen. But you look at the map that shows the path they took uh-huh. up by the North Pole, and it's like, you know, we didn't have the, the equipment, the technologies, blah, blah, that we do today. That must, how do you get somebody to volunteer to do that? Maybe you're naive, you're not that experienced, you don't have much choice. I don't know about the much choice, but you figure the captain ought to have some idea of the, uh, the issues. I know, I mean, you know, they say, well, would you go blast yourself into a Mars mission? Well, yeah. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? You do have some foreknowledge that you're probably not going to come back. But what would be the incentive for those guys to do that? Can you imagine being on that little ship for seven freaking years? You would go crazy, I think. Oh. Well, and the funny thing is you're seeing natives in the area. You know, they're getting out, moving out, and surviving. It's just the people who aren't accustomed to the weather who succumb to it. Yeah. 1845. Man. Yeah, and it wasn't until 1906 that they somebody finally did make it all the way. But even that took them three years. I always find it interesting, too, how shallow the water is up there. I think the wreck they found was like, you know what, about 80 foot of water? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't all right. that deep. The other one was 45, 50. Yeah. I'm not real familiar with the, you know, land and continental shelf up there, but not not like the Mid Atlantic. That's amazing. Well, like I said, that's still not you know a lot of people have been living up there by then. One would have thought they'd have had some good survival tips and techniques or something. I don't know. Well, they had seven years of food, so they must have thought. Because what were they planning on doing? Sailing all the way through, then sailing back? Is that the idea? Well, it, well, it must be then they must have lost the ships around the ice, and that's why they died because the food stores went down with the ships. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I'd have to read the article, but it seemed like they they did survive freezing solid a few times, and the ships moved between the the thaws. But 
Uh, you tend to get in these cycles up there where you have a really warm summer and it all opened up, but then it then you have a couple of years where it barely thaws and it's already freezing again. You would, you would think the Inuit people might have wanted to help them, or maybe they didn't pay attention to the indigenous folk. Well, there there seems to be stories about them. I don't know if they like had direct contact and said they were crazy or just noticed that. But there was, in fact, I think that's how they found these shipwrecks is just some of the, the verbal history that was communicated, of course. And, in fact, I think one of the bays was named after, yeah, that what basically meant the wreck site or something. Well, with all the global warming, we're going to be able to do a lot more shipwrecks up yeah. there, what can I say? And maybe we'll find another alien base, too. Yes. Well, how's this? Leftover German one from World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> how's this for uh, some potentially cool scuba gear? Ocean Gate starts building a submersible craft that can take crews thirteen thousand feet deep. The company that helped map the wreck of the Andrea Doria is moving forward with construction of a submersible craft that can go much deeper, four thousand meters or thirteen thousand one hundred twenty-three feet deep, two and a half miles below the ocean surface. OceanGate announced on Thursday has officially begun construction of five-person Cyclops II submersible. The company, based in Everett, Washington, has been working on design engineering for the 22-foot-long craft in Cooperation University of Washington's Applied Physics Lab since 2013. Over the past year, OceanGate has been pressure-testing one-third-scale model of the Cyclops II in preparation to move ahead with a full-scale vehicle. Construction of Cyclops II is a significant milestone in human exploration of the ocean. When completed, it will be the only privately owned submersible in the world that can take five people to these depths. Some crew-capable submersibles gone deeper. For example, 2012, James Cameron went 11,000 meters, 36,000 feet deep in the Deep Sea Challenger submersible with Seattle billionaire, billionaire Paul Allen providing an assist. But the craft was built to hold only one person. It's the roomy five-people capacity that makes Cyclops too attractive to Ocean Gate. Uh, delivery is scheduled for next spring. Yeah, but not not the big passenger one that's going to go deep. That's a shallow one. I think oh. that's what, number one, uh, Cyclops one, correct? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, no, in June, Ocean Gate used Cyclops mm-hmm. one to survey the remains of the Andrea Doria. So Cyclops one is already going. Right. All said, first up to Cyclone two. So that's going to be a long way to go there. The first in water for Cyclops 2s in 2017. Cyclops 1 was designed only to go to 1,640 feet. You saw that, right? Yeah. That's yeah, still pretty deep. We could we could use that. Yep. I think I just sent you, by the way, the uh, photos of the Andrew Doria that Cyclops 1 took. Mm-hmm. You see it at the bottom? Yeah. Go click on that little baby. If we did nothing more than just look at the pictures, it's quite interesting how deteriorated the Andradoria is, and we knew that. Now, where are you seeing the the photos of the... Well, when you got to it, you see the one that doesn't look like a diddly squat. Yeah. But that's the ship itself, totally encrusted and deteriorating. Going down, you'll see the the image. It almost looked like a heat image. Uh-huh. That's badly deteriorated. And then if you go down again... You'll see other sections of the, uh, the sonar scan, top down of the Andradoria. And they are hard to read, the scans. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's what I'm looking at. I'm, it doesn't make much sense. It looks like a clarinet to me. 
That's the port rail extending to the right. That's just a section of the hull. So I'd be curious to see the better pictures. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, we, we what we could do with a submersible. It would be interesting to be able to be able to spend some time without having to worry about deco on some of the wrecks we have. It would be. I did realize I said the section of the bow had broken off. Collapsing cave is what they say. It used to be considered one of the mecha divers, diving places. Mm-hmm. If you were any kind of good diver or active diver, you dove the Doria back in the day. It's kind of like a stress test. If you don't die from a heart attack, hypothermia, getting lost in the wreck, or uh, decompression sickness, it, it was fine. <laughs> yeah, and it, it, it's, it's almost like a litmus test for... If the reason you're diving is just to say that you dove it, then it just seems like you're asking for it. Now, if you wanted to see it, I mean, if there's something that was interesting about seeing it or you wanted to do some exploring or recovery, I can understand that. But just to do it as a bucket list item, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't know. It's like, why climb that mountain? Why dive the Fitzgerald? Yeah. It's it's a personal thing there. Yeah, I I, I think I'll let other people do that. I need about a minute and a half out, and I'll be right back. Okay. Sorry about that, but I had to give me a a drink. I'm already getting hoarse. It's almost time to talk about situational awareness. There you go. Well, that does it for Scuba the News. So I, I think we're getting to that time of the show where we've got uh, Mac talking about his, uh, what, what are we calling this? We need, we need some bumper music for this. Mac, <laughs> Mac's safety story. Well, it's not always just safety, but it's something related to keeping yourself safe when you're out there, attuned to what you're doing. Today's one, anyway, it's a continuation of last week. It's called situational awareness, and this is situational awareness number two. And a lot of the stuff I get out of this is Dan, but if you look around and you start researching it, lots and lots of people are talking about the same type of topic. So I've I've got my little spiel, so I'm going to read it. I'll finish done. When I'm done, then we can talk about it if you like. So basically, in the winter of uh, 2011, the alert diver, which is Dan, provided a look at how situational awareness affects the safety of divers. The divers, or I should say, but the divers are actually the beneficiaries of studies conducted on uh, situational awareness, not only in the diving, but in aviation, naval, and surgical fields. And as an example, recently a general surgeon at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston wrote the best-selling book called The Checklist Manifesto. Okay, It demonstrated how the constant use of checklists barred from the aviation community has made surgery safer. Checklists are commonly used in many fields, yet catastrophics occur even with their constant use. The following examples of where inadequate situational awareness or procedural follow-through led to critical errors. Case studies. I remember this one. December 29, 1972. The cockpit crew of Eastern Airlines Flight 401 is on a normal flight. Visual rules of, of, of the visual flight rules approach 
which means I can see I'm not on instruments and I can see the freaking airport. The landing checklist is complete, but the nose gear warning light is on. Obviously, you got to investigate it and a go around pattern if necessary. The crew fails to monitor the altitude, ignores the low warning altitude light and flies the aircraft right into the Everglades in the middle of the night. Because one, in darkness, you didn't see it. Black is black. There was 101 fatalities. The voice recorder confirms the landing checklist was performed correctly. But the uh, National Transportation Safety Board, the NS, NTSB, found the crew got preoccupied and distracted. Accordingly, they never looked out the window. If they had, they would have realized, whoops. On February 5th, I remember this until on February 5th, 2009, a guided missile cruiser, the USS Port Royal, runs aground in Pearl Harbor. Millions of dollars in damage. The accident board found the navigation crew had failed to recalibrate the nav system. On November 2005, a vascular surgeon marks a patient's right leg for combined toe amputation and bypass. This follows the latest safety guidelines designed to limit wrong site surgical errors, which you know are techniques embraced by the surgical community. After they scrubbed up, surgeon walks in to find the nurse preparing the left leg. Fortunately, the error was quickly corrected. Operation went as planned, but it was a near miss or what they call a sentinel event. Investigation revealed that the verbal and written checklist were completed as required, yet the prep team still got it wrong. So, bottom line, through the case studies were generated in the Navy aviation surgical fields, the impact of lost situational awareness affects people in all walks of life. They said a goal we might strive is to emulate strategies employed by situational awareness experts who have implemented with maximal effectiveness the three situational awareness fundamentals we talked about last week, perception, comprehension, projection. All right, so let's take a look at something here. What have we learned? What, what kind of human limitations do we have that are not helping us out very much? Number one is limited short-term memory. This is our working memory. And they say, in contrast to long-term memory, which contains the culmination of our education life events, our working memory is basically like our RAM. Try to uh, think of memorizing a new phone number. Only seven digits. But most people, most, me especially, you have to write it down, Repeat it over and over until at least it's stored and ready for use. Takes me forever. Okay. Research shows that we can optimally manage four items at once after which your performance degrades. This limitation of short-term memory should prompt us to link our task number to optimal performance and minimize errors. Don't try to do a lot of things on your diet. Okay. The other one is called frame errors. We are all product of our experiences. You know, this is the frame which we place data or cues to make sense of them. Uh, it's an efficient way to leverage previous experience. Uh, like in the previously mentioned surgical seminal event, the team member was used to seeing the X represent location of pulses in the leg. Years of experience created this frame of reference. Yet in reality, it represented the new practice of surgical site marking. This frame error or cognitive bias, meaning misinterpretation of what we hear or see, is too common. And it blinds operators to the true meaning of a situation. The next item to talk about is design and management. They're commonly known as systems or process errors. For example, does a dive boat have a chase boat available? Do they have additional oxygen supply for treatment of decompression illness? Which crew member is designated to call the Coast Guard while you're responding to an emergency? 
So they're saying the ability to project consequences is fundamental to good planning. And we talked about that two cycles ago when we talked about emergency action plan. Do you have one? And have you practiced it? So it looks like we have too much memory or too little memory or are susceptible to personal frailties and we worked in flawed systems. And they say, well, there are solutions, but you look at them from an individual and team perspective. First one was minimize multitasking. It has proven to be the worst possible strategy for actual accomplishing any task, meaning multitasking. It says, for example, don't assemble your gear during the pre-dive brief. Instead, focus on the dive plan. Make sure and your buddy agree. One thing at a time. They say, get into your situational awareness zone. They say, level one, alternate your scan of critical data like what's your depth? How much time has he been down there? Where's your buddy at? Oh, look at the pretty fish. You know, you're there to have fun. They said, then evaluate this information in the context of your dive plan, meaning are they still in sync? And then said, project your current position into the future to see if it makes sense or if changes to your plan are needed. The article you talked about, the lobster hunters, that's what they said. Well, if it's this way, we come up. So they had anticipated and they followed through with their, with their dive plan. What to do if? They said, look for clues for loss of awareness. Is your dive plan off? Is there conflicting data? Could be, I got down, I didn't have 30 foot visibility, I had five. Uh, doing your buddy have wildly different pressures on the gauges. Did you pay attention to each other? Or does the other guy know what you've got? Are you reaching the checkpoints on your plan? Are the conditions more challenging than you expected? Could be current, visibility, depth. Those are the items you need to be also looking at. They talked about team skills. They said the United States Air Force Research Lab found the best combat teams excel in three fundamentals of teamwork. One is communicate. They exchange information freely and use closed-loop communication, which means when critical data is passed between two people, two parties, the receiver repeats back exactly what they heard. Now, I worked at a cook plant, and we had three-way communications, which is they tell me, I repeat that I heard them, and then they say they heard me repeat it back. It's a pain in the butt, but when you cannot afford a miscue on calibration or testing of systems on a nuclear plant, you might want to have that three-way communication. This is critical when complex, you know, performing a complex dive plan, diving in dangerous waters. And if you've looked at public safety diving, that's the dogma. They have plans for everything before you get in the water, contingency plans for when you're in the water and what happens if. They're, they're, I love to look at the public safety manuals. I couldn't do it because, one, it takes money, takes people, takes training, takes time. A lot of people do not like that regimentation, but if, <clears throat> but they really want to keep you safe. You can't beat those public safety guys. Uh, cooperate. And they said they're maintain that positive attitude and be happy to accept advice and help from others. No one knows it all. It says make sure you they know what you want them to, that you want them to have a good dive. They said it's called shared cognate, cognitation and it's to get everybody on the same page. Coordinate. It said make sure all divers share the same goal. And be willing to step up and help anybody on anything. And it's like we talk about, even a minor one, anybody can call a dive off for any reason. And nobody's going to harp on you. You know what I mean? It's like, I got out there, I spent all my money, I'm on this boat, and something's not right. When I say, okay, dive's off for me, don't try to force them into it, you know, by calling them names and this kind of stuff. Just don't do it. 
They say what you need to do is also develop what NASA astronauts call our courageous self-leadership. They said, always strive for perfection. Do not fall in the complacency trap. Just because a regulator is working fine now, there's no reason to skip its annual service, fix it before it breaks, to prevent it from breaking. After all, they said the Challenger O-rings had always worked perfectly before in cold weather. If you don't think headcount is correct, say something, for example. You're not being foolish by raising your hand or noting inconsistencies. You're being the diver we all want for a buddy. So that's situational awareness number two. Next week, we'll have number three. Excellent. Yeah, it just continues to reinforce the have a plan, communicate in advance, try not to be distracted. Yeah, uh, dive your plan. Uh, limit your multitasking. And a lot, a lot of the times, I think, when we're doing deep wrecks and our wrecks or penetration, we are a lot more fixated on doing the planning before, during, after, you know, including the, the debriefing afterwards as well as before. Mm-hmm. The turn back stuff, it's when we're doing a lot of the shallow water work that we may not be doing that as much. I think what we are, though, is we're conscious of new people. And by watching over them, we watch over ourselves at the same time. Because yes. if we're trying to keep them out of trouble, it's keeping us out of trouble. Yeah, yeah and that, that may be probably one right our biggest risk is when it's the, the same divers who've been diving on the boat all season and we're doing a wreck that's a third time for the season. That's where you can start to get a little complacent. Well, we've, we've talked about that before. I have even taken a flag on the Havana. That way you know where I'm at. I also like it because I have a positive upline. I don't have yes. to throw a bag up or nothing. Um, I have used it on my rack. It's 70 feet, 75 feet. It's a pain in the butt sometimes, but I'm not going to snag anything down there. But you know where I'm at. Yeah. But some people who have other technologies at their disposable may be going down, and I can't even see their bubbles because they're on a rebreather. Mm-hmm. Everybody comes up. we got one diver in the wire. Where's he at? Not a freaking clue. <laughs> All you know is, and how long? Oh, I don't know. How long is it going to be down? Do we know? If we don't, we are really, we have no plan. You know, when do you declare I have an issue here and I need to call the Coast Guard? So we ourselves need to be working on some of that as yeah. contingent issues. Yeah, we have had a dive where it's been, you know, an hour and 40 minutes. Uh, how long was he going to be down again? Yeah. Because we're, we, we get used to it, especially when we've been diving with him a lot of him being the first one in by about 10, 15 minutes. Uh, you know, we dive down, we all see him, wave to him, and then head on the way back up. I, the reason I take my flag with me almost everywhere, I was diving 70s with a friend of mine. We were doing solo dives back then, but I always had my flag with me. And we went out, and I'm usually pretty good on my air consumption. So I came up, but he's... I have no idea where he's at, but you know, I'm, I'm good. I've been down there a good long time. I'm an hour later to the point that uh, I'm getting ready to go find the cops and say my, my buddy is drowned. And that's, I'm sitting there on the shore thinking, what the hell am I going to tell his wife? You know, then I had another friend who came down to find out, you know, where we were dying, what we were doing. And I said, uh, I think we got a problem here because uh, I've been out over an hour and he's not up here. And just about the time I said, you wait here, I'm going to go to the cops and, and, you know, declare we're having a problem here. 
I watched his head pop up way out in the nowhere, looked around, waved, went back down. Then you could see him coming in the shoreline. That scared the hell out of me. Wow. You know, what am I going to tell his wife? Because I had no idea where he was at. So from that day on, we both took flags wherever we went, especially since we weren't buddying up on the same line. I like to know where you were at. Yeah, I've done flags consistently for rivers. Uh, we, we did forget a flag uh, last time. I think we did Lake 16. Uh, but we're, we're usually pretty good. But on the boat, I have to say, I've it's been rare. I think I've only dove with a flag like twice. I think that was both times was on Max Rack. Uh, and just because conditions can sometimes be a little bit different out there. Uh, and quite often you're going with a buddy. You're mm-hmm. tuning to it, but not all the time. Because no. quite often, first man down is going to set the anchor. He may pop a buoy up or come up and say, hey, we're down. Then bang, he's down. So we normally do not dive in buddies, teams, unless I'm taking somebody with me. Like if I took Mary Beth on a, a wreck dive, she's right there two feet from me. I'm not letting her get out of my sight. You know, we are much more attentive when we have newbies than when we have people who we consider knowledgeable and can do it on their own. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to. I have to agree. Um, right. One thing I need to do is I think I need to put together a collection of dive flags because my river dive flag is really not appropriate for taking in a boat like Bob's Zodiac. It just takes up too much space. So I need something a little bit more compact. Uh, in fact, I could even make something that's a, a modified uh, safety sausage and float that as a dive or take, flag, or take a safety sausage, inflate it when you go down. Yeah. The only problem is with that, and you'll notice, how often do you do, go down and you wrap the darn line around the line as you go down and you spend time at the bottom unwinding? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done The that same there. thing with the safety sausage. Yeah, well, the thing with the safety sausage is if you're going to do that, uh, and that goes back to the communication, is let people know what does that safety sausage mean. You know, sometimes, like I think right now, if I put a safety sausage up, you know, they're either thinking he, he's trying to mark something, he's got an anchor he wants to bring up, or he's in trouble. But you would tell people before you went down. Yes. So we would know as yeah, I, part of that I, yeah, job would, thing. Yeah, I would say, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna mark this, and and a lot of times, especially in the and the recently diving on Havana, uh, where we're trying to figure out is this one wreck, two wrecks, what parts are we seeing? Yeah. Uh, there's actually a benefit to that. It it might not be a bad idea to bring the the no. I, I what I'm what I would do is I would tie it off to an end and then do a two tank dive on it. Because I, I'm trying to visualize where I am once I get back up. So you come down the anchor, maybe go across the wreck, and then float the sausage up at the end. We have been talking about for years that every time we go out there, everybody should take a one-gallon jug, put a number on it. When they go down, when they find the most interesting thing there to them, they tie it off, come up the line, go back to the boat. At the end of the dive, we should have five, six, seven, ten jugs out there. Then we take the map that we have, and we say, okay, what is number one, find it on the map. You know what I'm saying? Then you're going to get a visual impression of what's on the bottom, on the surface, because quite often what you think you saw on the bottom is not really what you saw, you know, in perspective. Yeah. Not to mention if you're carrying that that one-gallon jug behind you, we know where you're at. Certainly. But it's, it's food for thought. And, again, we're talking situational awareness. I think the biggest one for most of us, and the reason we, we sometimes let some of that may slide is most of us, as I recollect, I know I do, I take a bailout. If I ever need air, 
I, I use my bailout and I make sure it works before I go down. When I'm on the bailout, I come straight to freak up. I'm not going to horse around and I get back to the boat. If you got air, you got time. You know, you're not going to panic. It's when you don't have something like that is when you get a little freaky. Yes. And I think that makes a big difference on our attitude when we go out. Like Kevin always got a bailout when he's like that. I have a bailout. Jim takes about a thousand pound tank with him. Yeah. He's never going to run out of air. Um, and I think sometimes that makes why we make, I don't want to say shortcuts, but we don't necessarily plan certain parts of our dive like we should as I start reading this and bringing it up to the surface. Maybe we should. No, we should. No, maybe to it. I certainly agree. Very good points. Well, let's go ahead and talk about diving. Has anybody gotten in the water in the last week that you're aware of? Uh, not this week. Uh, part of it was the weather changed, and it went from not too bad to you've got ice. Uh, did you see the pictures I posted today? Uh, no, actually, I haven't. I haven't really been there. Uh... Pictures of uh, Fisherman's Park, Whirlpool Basin, and the uh, dock frontage up by where the uh, concrete ships come in, where I've been diving, where I found that nice anchor two, three weeks ago. All of that's got ice. Uh, you got really thin ice around the uh, sand launch area where the kayaks launch and Whirlpool Basin. Across the river, you've got 12-foot circular uh, icebergs or pancake ice. And from that area to the river, to the lake, is all ice. Not solid, meaning it's, it's, it's icebergs. There's no open water. So diving there is not going to be too swift. I'm trying to get a, a bubble watcher so I can go diving uh, this week where we're going to do the New Year's dive, which is going to be uh, Hidden Valley. It's basically a, a large pond this lady has who's letting us use it. It's got 25, 30 huge koi fish. It's um, a dugout clay bottom, but it's silt. So the visibility is going to go right to heck if you touch the bottom. But we're basically doing a dunk-it dive, you know, for New Year's. It should be fine for that. But we got to go out and check how thick the ice is already since that is a, a pond. It's low level. Last week it was already 38 when I dove it. And it's definitely ice over now. I just don't know how thick. And I want to check that out. So we can get some people who want to dive it before New Year's so they feel more comfortable with it. That would be great. I agree. Ah, uh, here we go. God darn it. On Facebook, I'm, I'm going through. Ah, uh, yeah, we do. Wow. We do have a little bit of ice forming. Uh, yes, you do. And that's on a moving area. All the uh, sister lakes are, are iced over. Pawpaw, uh, yeah, Pawpaw Lake is iced over. Yeah, well, well Pawpaw is ice. Well, I do not know the thickness, though. Yeah, well, we've got a lot of uh, cold air blowing today, so. Yeah, 14 degrees average. So she's thickening up pretty good. Yeah. So that pond should be quite thick, I would think. And it seems it like, like once you get a little bit of ice, it just breeds more ice. So we, we may be doing some ice diving early in January for Lucky. Well, we're going to be doing it this month. I well, hope to be doing it this week. But so not, I, not on the solo that. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're not talking about an inland lake. You're talking about where, you know, where you're doing a shore dive and you got to break the ice to get in. Right, right. And this here, it's going to be a pond, but still it's going to be a nice dive. So I really would like to have a shore support on that one. I don't particularly care to do ice dives by myself. Not anymore. I, I, 
I went through that phase and I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's too much work and. I have done that in a river years ago and it's those lessons learned because I didn't die. <laughs> I think we all have those stories about how yeah. close did you come to being real stupid and dead. Yeah. It can happen. Again, usually because you're stupid. So Kevin didn't get out this week? No, I do not believe he did. Oh, that's got to be like a first for him in a long time. I mean, I know there's been times where he hasn't quite dove, but he's at least gotten out in a boat. But, yeah, with it, with it getting this cold, it's it's going to be hard. Well, they were making snow last week, so it wouldn't surprise me if he's up there on the mountain the, today playing ski patrol, man, which he does. Oh, that's true. Well, he's, he's when he texted me earlier, he said that uh, his uh, occupation had been keeping him busy and he was barely getting enough time to sleep, let alone do anything else. So, Well, you know, being a, with his job, it's really, 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 really busy during the Christmas season. Yes. It's, yeah, been, I, a, it's been a bear since you figured the election. That I, really swamped them guys. And now, you know, two weeks till Christmas. Yep. Every, everybody wants their stuff right now. Yep. So Eric is on Skype, but he's not talkable, or can he talk? Um, I don't know if he's got a headset or anything, but we got Eric on, and we have some people in the chat room. We're, we're working on a new solution in the chat room, so as soon as we get this website up and going and I get the new hosting for the audio files, then I'll be looking at some streaming options, uh, maybe YouTube but maybe some others. Um, I, w- I want to do something that makes sense, so we'll be working on that. So we're making some progress. So you're saying we had people in talk show? Uh, yes, we have uh, Scuba Tech, we have Eric, we have Guest 6. I just kicked in to see what the heck was that. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, that's you. You must be Guest yeah, 6. Yeah, that's me there. Yeah. Do we know who the other gentleman is? Or where he's from? Scuba Tech? Well, is there's it? two people there I don't know. Well, Eric, I do know. Yep. I'm just curious where the other guy's from. Yeah, Scuba Tech, I think, is from Chicago. Okay. We, we've, we've, we've dove with both of them. Oh, is that the one who came out for the ecology dive? Yeah. Oh, okay. I know who you're talking now. Yep. Yep. So let's see. Is there anything else we got to talk to? We got we got to thank our Patreon supporters once again. So uh, that goes uh, Vanessa Homniak, who I've got her box of goodies all packaged up, and I just got to I – I need to mail them, get them in the mail, but they're all packaged. So that's a major accomplishment for me. Uh, you can see why I'm not a fulfillment outfit myself, personally. Only at work. Uh, well, at least she, she gets the bonus stuff, though. No, she does. She gets. She has uh, a few bonus. So there's uh, three different item types and four items that she will be getting. So uh, she should be excited when she sees them. They're they're nice. A good collection. So if you have any questions, Vanessa, when you get them, let let me know. Um, and then also we have uh, our other supporter, Scott Holbert. So they are both at our Dive Nitrox level. And if you'd like to join them, go to www.scubaobsessed.com. Look for the links on Patreon and uh, give us a little donation. I'm going to update that Patreon site again, too, as well. i got a lot of work here to do. Plus, I'm going to be starting a new project here. Uh, I've been starting it for a while, but officially. So I'll be announcing that. That's separate from... It is kind of borderline scuba-related, but not really. It's pretty circular. It is pretty circular. Well, there's elements of it that are scuba diving related, and you use it in scuba diving, but 
that's not the primary purpose. Uh, also, I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air. If you like hunting, fishing, or the great outdoors, then you want to give them a try. They're uh, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, some of the best programming on hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors. WRVO Radio. And thanks to those in the chat room, and, and we'll be uh, getting that taken care of. Somebody, somebody pasted a a contact for Skype. Let me, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. We're at that time of the show, so he's just going to be able to get on just for the joke. Yes, just for the joke. I'm going to put him in here. Then I'll get ill. Yeah, that's, that would, that'd be terrible. Mm. Oh, crud. Email. Oh, Skype. I, I love all these services. They think they're making things easier and they, and it's like they do the, oh, darn it. Let's see here. This makes for great radio, you know, when you go and add somebody's a contact on Skype. Let's see. Do uh, you have anything you want to plug, Mac, before we get going? No, I'm pretty good for now. I will be posting pretty soon uh, information for the New Year's Dive. Cool. Well, I would say then let's go ahead and do it. Go for it. And this one we can thank uh, Rod again. An Irishman goes for a job interview. The boss asks him to visually represent the number nine. So Mick draws three threes, which puzzle the boss. How is that the number nine? Mick explains it is one, two, three threes, which make nine. Next, the boss asks him to represent 99. So Mick licks his fingers and smudges, smudges each tree. That's three dirty trees, which is 99. To catch Mick out, the boss tells him, now make that into a hundred. Easy, says Mick. And he makes a small scribble at the bottom of each tree. This perplexes the boss, and he asks Mick to explain. That is a dog turd. So we have dirty tree, and a turd times three is a hundred. Yeah, I told you this was a different one. I'm a little slow today. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had to read it three or four times, and and probably would help if I had a an English accent to go along with it. So maybe maybe we need to have a guest do that one next time. An English guest. Yes. So until next time, go out there and get wet, and stay safe. <laughs>